Heavenly Father, we're grateful that we know for a fact that you're here. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to think, I wonder if God will show up today. You've told us that you're here. Lord, if anything, this season of the year emphasizes to us, it's your overwhelming and everlasting presence in our lives. God with us. Lord, I've seen you in the eyes of friends this week, in their encouragement, and certainly in these prayers. Father, will you teach us how to live by faith in this season of the year? Lord Jesus, would you just coach us on what's important and what's not? Lord, several of the things we've mentioned today as prayer concerns are vitally important. Not just to the person going through them, but to us as well as members of, of a faith family. So, we thank you for your involvement already. We thank you for the promise of your touch. We thank you for the promise of, um, uh, Lord, comfort for those who are grieving and the promise of everlasting life. We pr thank you for the promise of healing. And now, Lord Jesus, we want to talk about and study the promise of a son a Savior. Teach us what's important. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Are you a planner? Or have you got somebody in your family that's a, that drives you crazy because they're a planner and you're not? By the way, I'm that guy in my family. I'm the guy that plans and I'm the guy that makes everybody else in the family stark raving nuts. Okay? I really am. Um, uh, when are we going? When are we leaving? When do you think we'll get there? How much money do we need to take? You know, all that stuff. Um, uh, and I, it, you know, I, I live with a very serendipitous girl, uh, which is wonderful for me. But I'm constantly pushing her to plan a little more. Uh, hadn't worked. I've worked on that project for 40 years and hadn't really changed anything. And frankly, she hadn't changed me either. But but you, you kind of get the idea. Um, I'm often frustrated because I make plans and somebody else in my life uh, is constantly changing them. Or um, I'm constantly trying to make a plan. It's driving everybody else crazy in my life. So I, it's just, I'm that guy. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine, you and I know that my best laid plans often change and it frustrates me. Can you imagine how Mary felt and how Joseph felt when the plans they had radically changed? In our lesson today, Mary is going to find out that her part in God's plan is one that's going to change her plans and Joseph's plans for the rest of their lives. And they're going to embark on an adventure that will change their lives and change your life and change mine.
forever. Now, let me give you a little bit of background, and then we're going to start in just a little bit with verse 26 out of Luke 1. It's not because the stuff before it isn't important, but I will tell part of that story in a little bit. Uh, this lesson looks at a vital segment in a sequence of bigger stories. Uh, we're going to talk about Gabriel, the angel's visit to this maiden lady, Mary, who was pledged to be married to Joseph. You can read about that in Matthew 1.18. Um, now, their path to marriage was different than most of what uh, we encounter. Literally, there was a time of betrothal that really felt as much like marriage as, as marriage kind of did. Uh, in other words, if uh, during this betrothal period, which probably lasted a year or more, they were engaged and, they, and their, uh, their lives were intertwined inseparably except by divorce during this time, even though they didn't live together, they spent the time that they had together planning what was coming next, the marriage and uh, living together, but they didn't live together. Um, they spent a little bit of time together planning, but other than that, they were, but they were as married as married people would be in our day, even though they were only kind of engaged in our nomenclature. Uh, the customs of the day involved various levels of freedom and consent on the part of one or both persons to be married, but they were legally bound. That's what you and I have to catch as we read the story. In fact, um, in fact, that was part of the problem as you read Matthew 1, verse 18 and 19. Part of the problem was uh, when Joseph finds out that Mary is, is pregnant, um, that's why he says, it, the Bible says that he uh, privately planned to put her away. The other idea was uh, not to send her away, but to divorce her. He was doing kind of the, the, the likely, um, actually a very gracious thing in doing that. Um, and uh, that was his plan until an angel appeared to him. We won't talk about that story today. But Now, what you need to understand is this is all against a backdrop of a larger story of God's relationship with his people and it was a time of slavery for the Jews. As I mentioned, I think last week, it had been 400 plus years of kind of silence between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so as we begin today, we find the people of God living in Palestine, most of them, but they were under subjection, uh, the Jewish people were under subjection to the Roman government and to the Roman authorities, and Joseph and Mary lived within that system. Now, here's my question as we start, and we're going to pick it up. Steve Blair's going to read verse 26 to 33, but as he begins this, I'm going to ask the question, it's a trick question, okay, but think about it as Steve reads, when and where did the gospel actually begin? So we've got that 400 years of silence after Malachi. When and where does the gospel begin? This is a tricky thing, and I'm intrigued by it. Steve, would you read 26 through 33 from Luke 1? In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Okay, now, if your Bible's like mine, if you're in a, a more, um, and by the way, Steve, would you go over to, um, I'm going to ask you to do a couple things here. Go to John 1:46. we'll read that in a minute, and when you're finished with that, would you hand the mic to Louise? Because she can't wait to read. Okay, all right. She loves to hear her voice over a sound system. Yeah, okay. Uh, by the way, as I look at you, see, now, now I'm going give to you, give you air time here. Um, Seaworth Christmas parties are this coming week. Tuesday and Wednesday. Tuesday south, Wednesday north, all morning. So if you can volunteer, either show up or call Louise or what? Okay, okay, great, okay. Aren't you glad I remembered that? Because I forgot it until I saw your face, okay. Um, all right, now, so Steve reads this, and it begins with, in the sixth month. In the sixth month of what? If you're reading the NIV, it gives you a little bit of detail there, doesn't it? If you're reading a, a fairly modern translation of the NIV, how does it begin? Okay, it is. Now, one of the translations I was reading actually had that detail in there. But it's, in most of our Bibles, it's not there. Um, so the idea is in the sixth month of, uh, and Stella said it well, of Elizabeth's conception. I'm sorry, Elizabeth's pregnancy. Thank you. Did you say conception? I was copying you. Okay. All right. So keep, keep me honest, Okay. <laughs> So, it's, it was in the sixth month of Elizabeth and Zechariah's pregnancy with a little boy. They were elderly people, and you can begin to read their story in verse 5 of chapter 1. After a little introduction by Luke, verse 5 begins with uh, this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were a priestly family. Uh, they were living in Judah, and uh, this, as the story goes, Zechariah goes to take his place or to take his turn serving in the temple as a priest. They were both from the tribe of Levi, from the tribe of Aaron, so they were both from priestly families. But they were elderly and had no child. Have you heard that story before as you read the Bible? It's all over the scriptures, isn't it? That was their story also. Zechariah goes to serve in the temple on his appointed day, and when he serves in the holy place, an angel appears to him. Zechariah drops his dentures. And the angel tells him what? You're going to have a baby. Elizabeth's going to have a baby. And he's still pretty incredulous of all that. And as the story ensues, we won't get to talk about it this Christmas. It's actually one of my favorite stories of this, this time of the year. But as the story ensues, that the idea is that this little boy is going to be special and he's going to be the harbinger of the one who is really to come. Their little boy will be John the Baptist, who will be the forerunner of his cousin Jesus. Okay, now... 
What I want to kind of catch us up with on that is the idea that I think here, okay, Jopi, follow me here. I think that the gospel begins in verse 5 of Luke 1. That the story, not, not literally, but the story of the gospel begins with the angel's appearance to Zechariah, not with the angel's appearance to Mary, okay? Because the, remember all these years, 400 years of silence, all of a sudden, God pierces this darkness, pierces this dark silence with the appearance of an angel to an old man serving his, his duty in the temple as a priest. And he says, uh, and he gives him this wonder, wonderful promise. So if I had to say when the gospel began, it begins six months before what, we just, what Steve just read. Okay. And it does begin, it's interesting, it begins in Jerusalem in the temple. I find that intriguing. You would think that the gospel message would begin in Jerusalem. But I want to tell you this, because of the story we're reading today, Jerusalem may have been the hub of all kinds of religious activity, but the action's really going to take place. You ready? In Paola. Anybody here ever been to Paola? You've been to Paola? Okay. Been to Paola? On purpose? Just passing through. Uh, yeah, just going to Paul's Valley or going the, the other way. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's not a place you go to. It's just not a place you go to. Uh, it's where my mother grew up, Garvin County. 500 people in one old grouch, it says on the population sign, you know, out in front of the thing. Now, if you, if you go there and, and you have time to take a side trip, kind of drive around. There's only about a half a dozen streets. And one of them is named after my grandfather, Cherry Street, okay? Because he was kind of a patriarch of at least years and years from there, okay? But listen to what, what the Bible says what one of Jesus' early disciples says about Nazareth, which is where this angel shows up. John 1, 46. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there, Nathaniel asked? Come and see, said Philip. Okay, the idea is Nazareth was Paola. Paola? Nazareth, you kind of get the idea. Mary and Joseph lived in this little backwater Galilean northern Palestine town of Nazareth. And that's where the angels showed up. So you could argue that the gospel really began six months before that in Jerusalem, but the action really begins to take place six months later in a little town called Nazareth where our story is then set. Now, if you look at verse 27, just kind of scan it, and by the way, this, this next couple of weeks, if you'll just read chapter 1 and chapter 2, if you want to really drill down to verse 39 and following, that'll help us for next week. But just let this, let this wash over your soul over the next week, couple of weeks. Verse 27, there is something said here that really for the first time ever is going to give us, remember now we're piercing the darkness, breaking the darkness of this 400 years of silence. There's going to be an announcement here that has messianic significance. OK? 
Okay, aren't you glad I didn't leave blank the word messianic? Say, I spelled that out for you. Significance. It has messianic significance. When they mention the name David in verse 27, it's going to say, oh, we're talking about the Messiah. Okay? Now, notice something else in verse 27. By the way, one, before I study sometimes a, a section, a smaller section like we're in this today, Sometimes I'll go through and just mark words that seem intriguing to me. If I were marking words in verse 27, what's the word I would probably mark? Virgin. Why, Cindy? Because it's in there twice, for one thing. And it's an unusual word to read in Scripture. Yeah. It's an unusual word to read in Scripture, for one thing. So there's this idea here. There's this messianic idea. And two times... It mentions the word virgin. Now, I'm going to ask you the question, okay? I heard a, a local um, oh, orator. I don't know if I'd call him a pastor, but I'd call him an orator. I heard a local orator one time say on the radio, if you have to believe in the virgin birth, it, I guess it's okay. Is the virgin birth important to the gospel writers? Sounds to me like it is. It's mentioned twice uh, in one breath here. And we're going to see it another time. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So, there's messianic significance to this. Now, what do you think it was? I, want you, I need you to hold with me here for a minute. What do you think it was about Mary that caused her to be favored? Okay. Uh, Louise, can I get you to go to, believe it or not, the book of Genesis 6, verse 8 and 9. And then I'm going to have you come back and read verse 22, 6, 8, and 9, and verse 22. While she's looking, I'm going to tell you a story, okay? December, and I think it had to be at least the 20th or 21st, December 21st, 1980. What were you doing then, dear? You were great with child, weren't you? Okay. But Rhonda was uh, expecting Jake. Jake was born on the 1st of January. Does that put in perspective for you? Okay. I was a minister of music in a, in a, in a uh, kind of a middle-sized town in eastern Kentucky, right in the heart of the Appalachians, where the Ohio River and the Big Sandy come together. Okay. And uh, I could spit in West Virginia and Ohio from where I lived. Not literally, but almost. Well, we decided, you know, I'd, I'd been in ministry a couple of years by that point. We decided, and I had this wonderful music program that I was a part of there, and I decided I would take our choir, about 40 or 50 people, downtown during the Christmas season, and we would do our musical outside. Made sense to me, right? So I went down and borrowed the, uh, I borrowed risers from the local high school, choir risers from the local high school, had them hauled down there, and I, I got a sound system together and kind of... Uh, recruited a sound guy. We got that all set up one afternoon. And then it started to snow. I mean, it was cold as all get out. And thankfully, these 50 or so faithful people showed up to sing on a street corner when there wasn't anybody there because it was too cold and the weather was too bad, but we sang anyway. And this girl back here sang this text. Nine and a half months pregnant. She couldn't close her coat, as I recall, dear. And she's saying, I can still hear it. Hail, thou who art highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
Blessed art thou among women. I can still hear your voice in my ear. That's this text. Now, what does it mean that Mary was favored? The word is the same word as graced. I want to read another place where this kind of expression is used, and it's all the way back in the beginning of the Bible in describing the man Noah in his generation. Louise, would you read uh, Genesis, what did it say, 6, 8, and 9? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah walked with God faithfully. He was known in his generation as a righteous man. He was singled out by God as a righteous man. Mary is singled out. And and by the way, it says, and Noah found favor with God. Did I catch that right, Louise? But other than that, the favor part, Noah and Mary don't have a whole lot in common. Except what I'm going to suggest to you. You see, it's kind of interesting who God places his favor on, his grace upon. And can I say to you, he's placing on everybody in this room. But as I look at Mary's story, what I want to say is, okay, she hasn't lived long enough, maybe 15 years. She hasn't lived long enough to be known as a faithful, righteous person. You know how old Noah was when this was written? About 500. If he'd lived a righteous life for 500 years, I'm seeing why God said he was faithful. Mary's still kind of young for that. But I want to read one other. It's interesting because as we read this passage, there's a, the, the money verse of Luke 1 is uh, found in a little bit when we get down to verse 38. But as we get there, remember what God said about God's word says about Noah in verse 22, Louise. Uh, 6.22. Genesis 6.22. Sorry. Sorry. I noticed you scrambling. I thought, okay, what? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't clue you in, did I? Hey, John, when this is done, can you come up and get the mic? Would you mind? Thank you. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark and your whole family, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. He was deemed righteous here because he did what God told him to do. Now there's your common denominator. I find it really interesting here that this highly favored one named Mary, was walking with God and looking for a Savior. She was walking with God and looking for a Savior. And the common denominator with Genesis 6.22 is they were obedient. Now, does that mean that I've got to be completely obedient before God will grace me? No. Uh, God's grace... Uh, precludes and precedes my obedience. But I think it's really important here. Now, look at verse 29 and 30. Mary is troubled, not only at there being an angel in her bedroom, okay? 
I'd be kind of troubled too, would you? Not only at that, but she's troubled about what he's telling her. But although she's troubled, it's clear here she has God's approval. Now, God has chosen to favor her here. Let's look at those two verses for a second again. It's going to say, she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering on what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. So that word favor is used twice here. Now, what I want us to do, even though we talk about a person that I really believe was being obedient, she was walking with God, she was faithful, and she was expectant in more than just a physical way, right? I want us to be really careful here to not build a theology around Mary's obedience or Mary's uniqueness. She was very ordinary. The thing that made the difference in her life is that she had faith in God and he graced her. Okay, just kind of stick with me there. Okay, and let's go on. Now, verse 32, uh, John, I need you to find, if you would please, Deuteronomy 10, 17. Okay, (laughs) the Bible here, in the angel's announcement in verse 32, he uses an interesting word. He will be, and here's the word, what? Great. Okay, now, uh, what's the first prayer you taught your kids to pray before? Meals. God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. Okay, my kids, uh, little kids, some of them still use that. We're lucky if we can get Silas to bow his head and fold his hands. He's usually into whatever's on the plate. So, but, Violet, certainly, God is great. That word is a unique word, and it's an Old Testament word, and it would be, when it was mentioned by, when it was spoken into existence here by the angel, it's going to indicate something different from the, than just, uh, uh, regardless of what, uh, kind of, depending on what side of that ball game you were on yesterday, uh, you're probably going to say, well, that was a really great game. This is not that word. This is a word that's reserved for God. Uh, John, read Deuteronomy, what did I give you? 1017. 1017, yeah. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Okay, now, so the idea here is our God is a great God. When, when the angel said, he will be great, He was making a divine, he was giving her son, yet to come, divine status. In every Jewish person every day, prayed a prayer that included something like, God is great. Using that expression. When the angel here says, your son will be great, it probably caused her to lose her breath. (gasps) Do you mean And he goes on in verse 33 to say that this one's rule, he gives him a name, will not meet expectations. He'll be a unique king. Can I tell you how? We can make a lot, a list of them, but I wrote these. He will be a king of peace, not a king of war. He'll be a king of servanthood, 
not a king who demands servitude. He'll be a king of love. And listen to what the angel says in verse 33. He will be a king forever. Sounds pretty unique to me, doesn't you? Okay, we've got to read the next section. John, since you've got that mic back there, would you mind to read 34 down through 38? How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Okay, stick with me here for a minute. I've always wondered, over the last several years at least, if you look up at verse 18, when the angel said to Zechariah, Elizabeth is going to conceive and bear a son. Why, why Zechariah got himself in trouble for asking, for asking, what? He's old, she's old, and he basically says, oh, get out of here. But with a Jewish accent, okay? <laughs> and I've always wondered, and by the way, the angel says, and by the way, since you questioned me, you're going to be mute for nine months. Okay? which I find that really interesting. He doesn't speak again until John is born and they're, they're uh, kind of doing his dedication and giving him a name. Why is it that, that Zechariah is punished for having a question and Mary is not? I think it's basically because Mary's question is quite different. Now, let me help you with this. Ze Zechariah, by the way, should have known better. There were many barren women in the Old Testament. We've said that a minute ago. And he was a priest for crying out loud. He should know those stories, that God can do these kind of things. But his question was a question of doubt. Can I tell you something? I believe, based on a little study, his question was a question of doubt. Her question was biological. Now, now stick with me here. It was biological. And uh, you're looking up at me saying, what is he putting in that blank? Mary's reasonable question is how. Now, it's interesting. The word virgin is translated three times in this segment that we're, we're uh, reading from today. Okay? Three times. We mentioned it earlier twice in uh, the, the uh, angel's greeting in verse, um, well, actually, before the angel's greeting as it's describing her in verse 27, okay, twice in that verse. We said that's kind of important. But if your Bible's like mine, does it also translate verse 34, the word virgin? How can this be since I'm a virgin? Mary's question. Anybody got anything else in your Bible but that? It's not. What does it say, Julie? That is actually a better translation. I did a little study on this. Did you hear that? Julie read, how can this be since I do not know a man? Now, in my study, the two expressions virgin that are translated that way in verse 27 use a particular word. In here in verse 
um, 34, it uses a completely different expression. It's a compound expression. It takes several words. And it literally, what she's asking here is a biological question. She's saying the third time the word virgin's used, she doesn't use the word that's used in verse 27. She says, how can this be since I haven't known a man? She's asking a question of biology here. Literally, she's saying, sir, uh, just curious, virgins don't have babies. Now, by the way, that classifies her right where we want her. She's pure in this regard. I haven't known a man. That's that expression. So, Gabriel, I, I think this is wonderful. Even though he also answered Zechariah early in the chapter, he really answers her here, and he gives her this wonderful answer, and he says, you need to know that God's power is at work here in you. He's going to be at work in you, and, and the Lord's Spirit is going to come on you. Nothing more and nothing less. There's, there's nothing hinky about this. Uh, if you read Greek mythology, you read about uh, the gods coming down to earth and and having consort with women. There's none of that kind of stuff here. This is God's power. His spirit is going to come on you. He uses the same expression that Jesus uses in Acts 1.8 when he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will have power. Okay, the same expression here. The Spirit's power is at work. And then in verse 36 and 37, she doesn't say, okay, so can I, help me hedge this bet. Tell me how I can confirm this. She doesn't say anything like that. But in verse 36 and 37, the angel says, and here's how you're going to know. He gives her confirmation. That's the word that goes in your next blank. She receives confirmation of this promise, even though she didn't ask for it. And I put the reference to verse 24 and, and verse 57. The idea here is that she asked for confirmation that th how this is going to take place. And the angel the way, you don't know it because in verse 24, Elizabeth's been hiding it. She's been wearing really big dresses for a while. But your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant. What? Yeah. Next week, we'll look at the visit that Mary makes to her. Did she ask for confirmation? No. And in verse 38, she gives what I would call an immediate, that's the word to go through the blank, Immediate response of obedience. She uses a word, doule. I am your doule. Your maid, your slave. It's the word, it's a strong word. The New, New American Standard uses the word here. Um, Bond slave. And then she says something really interesting. She says, I'm your slave. May it be to me as your word has said. The first thing I ever read of, of James's was called the jogging monk and exegesis of the heart. Here's what he says. He goes to it, he checked himself in a monastery to get in touch with God. And he says, upon arrival, I was assigned a monk who would be my spiritual director for one hour each day. He walked into our meeting room with jogging clothes underneath his cowl. I was disappointed. 
I'd been expecting an elderly man bearded to his knees who would penetrate my soul with searing blue eyes. Instead, I got a jogging monk. My director gave me only one task for the day, meditate on the story of the Annunciation in the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, our story for today. I walked back to my cell, wondering how I would occupy my time with this only one assignment. After all, I thought to myself, I could exegete this entire text in a few hours. What was I do with the rest of the day in silence? So he realizes he's in a birth narrative, et cetera, et cetera. The next day, he meets with the monk again to discuss his spiritual life. He asks what had happened with the assigned text. And, he, and James says, I told him I was just shy of disaster in terms of profound spiritual revelations, but that I'd come up with a few exegetical insights. I thought my discoveries might impress him. They didn't. My eyes later fell upon as I, he went back day after day. This monk keeps sending him back to the same text, our text for today. Kept sending him back. And he goes back and he says, my eyes finally fell on the famous words of Mary. Let it be to me according to your word. Her response to God's stunning promise that she would give birth to a son. Let it be to me, the words rang in my head. And then God spoke to me. Some might say it was all in my head or just my imagination. But how, how else does God speak? I had to relearn that the Bible is a book aimed primarily at the will of the reader. I was afraid to hear what the Bible might say because I was suspected it might ask me to change my life. It did. When I was running the show, as the monk observed, I could sidestep much of the Bible. Mary was Mary, and I could observe her dilemma and even write a good sermon about it. But now it was my dilemma. Could I, would I say, let it be to me? Now, let me ch challenge you with the question as we leave. Are you willing to say what she said every day before you open God's word? Lord, may it be to me today as you have said. Here's what I want to suggest to you in closing. God's plan for Joseph and Mary became a great adventure and ours. Does he have an adventure for you? See, I think he does. And I'm going to suggest to you that you don't want to miss it. You just don't want to miss it. And I'm going to also suggest to you that the path to finding it is saying to him on a regular basis, Lord, may it be to me as you have said. Merry Christmas.